Hello, this is Gary Todorov again, and I hope you're eager to continue this second cassette in the series of teaching on God's purpose and vision. Each of us that have experienced a revelation of the true purpose of God, and that exaltation, that sense of freedom that comes with experiencing that revelation, and yet in spite of the knowledge that we have that the purpose of God is to glorify him, and we give ourselves to that. And the unique way in which to do it is to exalt Jesus, and we give ourselves to that. Yet we find something is constantly warring in us to make us forget that purpose. Never stops day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every year of our existence. Satan and his forces are warring with our minds to bring us back into captivity to those laws of sin which existed before. Now, the Bible tells us clearly we're dead indeed unto sin. We're to reckon ourselves to be that way. We're to realize there's no condemnation of those which are in Christ Jesus. And yet, in spite of all these marvelous safeguards in Scripture and the means of grace which God has given us, we constantly find the terrible pressures of that warfare to remove from our minds the true purpose of our existence and to substitute something lesser. Now, we said earlier, whenever it's anything lesser, it isn't just something less in degree, like this is almost as good, but not quite the top purpose. No. If it is not the purpose, then it is reduced way down to a level, once again, of some form of self-centered thinking. There is no way to escape that we must either go to a completely God-centered point of view, which is to glorify him, and all things are directed toward him, or it must be some form of, I've lost that purpose, so here now is my purpose, and it becomes a self-centered purpose, even though it may be a good purpose. See, it might be a very religious purpose. It may have an altruistic idea, or it might be a charitable thing, but it certainly is not God's purpose, and therefore, ultimately, it causes us to reduce downward. For instance, if I were to forget God's purpose, the thought might be, that I can't attain to this purpose of utterly glorifying God until I first get my family together. So I say, now my purpose then is going to be to get my family together. But pretty soon I find out that getting my family together is a lifetime project because since people are constantly growing and developing, people are constantly shrugging off habits or getting rid of things that are wrong in their lives, that 20 years from now I'll still be seeing something in my wife that I wish were better. She'll still be seeing something in me that she wishes were better. Now, she can either come to the place, because she truly is glorifying God with her life, that she can receive me as I am, constantly praying to God for me. I can receive her as she is, constantly praying to God for her, and allow God to change her and realize that's going on all through life and rejoice in the marvel that I see and that she sees. Or I can become very interned. Now i found my lifetime purpose, and it's working to get my wife perfect, or she's working to get me perfect. And the result is, at some point, I will become utterly discouraged, because the more I try to perfect my wife, the more difficult it becomes to make that work out in practice. Then I'm liable to become bitter, carping, nagging, critical, and I become even more interned, and I decide that what I really need to do is get myself together. And so, once again, I'm back down to only my own total self-purpose. But if the glory of God is my purpose, 
It will always keep me expanded outward so everything is in its perspective. Now, in spite of the reality of many years of knowing that, I constantly find a warfare going on in my heart to make me forget that purpose and settle for something less. In the work of the ministry, I realize something we will be discussing on other lessons, that there is a way in which the purpose will be carried out, and we call it the vision, and that vision has three parts. And one of those parts of the vision is to see the church to be one church, to be all together. Now, not all together under one organizational umbrella or one ruling head. We're not speaking of that kind of togetherness, but a true brotherhood of believers where we know we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We know we're the family of God, and we found ways to bridge the gaps of our mental differences and cultural differences. And Jesus prayed for this, and it's going to happen. And I know that that's a very real part of the vision. Now, another part of the vision is while that church is perfecting, that she's to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's very real to me. And a third part of that vision is that individually each member of this great church is to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, I can get caught up in an aspect of the vision and lose sight of the purpose. So I get very strong into trying to bring the church together. I get very strong in trying to bring pastors together in a city. I become very intense on seeing Christian brethren from different church groups get together and begin to fellowship and work with each other. And the result of this, the harder I try, it's just like trying to perfect my wife. There are still people, the Lord is working on them, and I become utterly frustrated. Many times I find myself disgusted with the whole situation. I find myself at the end of myself and just despairing, and then I say, that's it, I've had it. I'm going to go back to my own little work, and I'm going to do just my thing, and it doesn't matter whether they ever get together or not. Or I will get it in my mind that evangelism, that's where it is. Forget the purpose, which is to glorify God. That's the reason for evangelism. That's the reason for the church coming together. That's the reason to be conformed to Jesus. I forget that, and then I begin to think about me going into all the world. And then I'm overwhelmed with the despair of the whole situation. Nationalism, communism, boundaries that I can't get to, lack of finances, the unconcern of many Christian people, whether anyone is ever saved, and I see it, and I become despairing, and I turn back within myself and say, that's it, I've had it, I'm just going to simply get by myself and pray and seek God, and I will get myself together. And so I fall into the trap of the third part of the vision, personally trying to get myself together. And then as I look in myself, I find so many weird convolutions of thought and mentality, and I see that God is still working on me, and I despair that he'll ever be able to finish the work by the time I stand before him. And once again, I pull back into myself and then fall under condemnation. But when I commit myself to glorifying God by my life or my death, my living or my dying, then everything falls into its proper perspective. And as long as I'm directing glory toward God and urging others to do the same, I know everything is going to turn out all right. But let no one make a mistake that that warfare is going on in our minds continually. When you are set to give God the glory, you cannot tell whether there's been failure or not. 
anyone looking at the life of the Lord Jesus and seeing him hanging on the cross would have certainly said his ministry failed. He's come to an end, and look at the terrible thing that happened to him, and probably he deserves it because he was a bad person, so forth. But because he was set to give God the glory, that was not failure, but the greatest success the world has ever known. See, when I determine to be a success, I can only measure success by my ideas of worldly success, and that's what produces the frustration. When I give myself to the glory of God, then the Scripture takes tremendous power in my life, says all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose, then there can be no real failure in my life. Even the failures work together for good. They constantly bring glory to God in my repentance, my surrender, my submission, my honoring him, and I'm constantly lifted up. So there's no true falling, but a constant moving forward. We have an example in Scripture. Paul, speaking of Demas, said Demas has gone back having loved this present world. Well, see, what we're really saying is he forgot the purpose of God to glorify him. And what he wanted once again is the fleeting riches of this world, thinking they would be the things that would satisfy. He gave himself to another purpose. And so we never hear of Demas anymore. There was a man that had a ministry. But isn't this also true of Judas? Judas had received part of his ministry. He was part of the apostleship. And yet he turned away from that real purpose, to glorify God. And what became important to him was 30 pieces of silver or to vent his frustrated feelings because he was not going to be the secretary of the treasury in the new kingdom. And whenever we lose sight of that is our purpose, we just simply have to fall down, 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 down to that level of self-gratification again. Something to look at from a woman's point of view is that sometimes we're taught that a woman's point of view is to minister to her husband or children. Well, now, that's not her purpose. See, that's a very real thing she does, and it's a wonderful gift that every woman has to minister to her husband or to her children. But that's not her purpose. She should do this to the glory of God. And as long as she's thinking this is to the glory of God, she does it with a richness and a fullness that's a beautiful thing to watch and behold. But if she ever sinks to the level of saying, this is my purpose. She finds herself endlessly frustrated. I did this for my husband, and he didn't compliment me. I did this for my children, and they don't appreciate it. I did it. And once again, we sink right back to that. I'll say, I've had it. I'm not going to do this anymore. But if it's to the glory of God, we can go on and go on and go on because we're receiving the praise of God and not necessarily the praise of men. It's an interesting thing that the purpose of God, as we've spoken to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to magnify, to worship him, to give glory to God, is something that is completely outside of the human heart and mind. Although Jesus lives within us, so in that sense, that purpose is within us. But it's something that originates outside of us. And it must be sustained by the eternal life of God, constantly coming into us. Now, if we move away from that purpose, no matter what we substitute it with, no matter how altruistic, we no longer have that life flowing to that purpose because it's not a proper purpose. It's just wrong. So we then try to reduce even that altruistic purpose to something we can understand naturally. And, of course, that puts us right back in the level of carnal thinking about it again. And that's why in the book of Corinthians, now something happened to that church. When Paul founded it, established it, built it up, and left it, I'm sure it was a highly spiritual 
operation in the Holy Spirit. But after a number of years, somehow the purpose of glorifying God slipped out, and other purposes you can see came into that church. The purpose was to be successful. And so there were groups of people who demonstrated their success by coming to the communion supper, bringing great banquet quantities of food, and they would eat it in front of those who had no food at all. Not only that, but some had gotten into being happy, but not understanding that true happiness is something that has worked in the deepest part of the spirit and not just outward things. So they brought great quantities of drink, and it actually mentions some of them were drunken. So here at God's Holy Communion, some of them glutted themselves, some of them became drunken, they shamed the people that did not have those things, and yet they could not see how terrible this was because they'd gone away from the purpose of God. Now, anytime we move away from that purpose, we must constantly reduce it to something we can understand naturally, and that always means an act of the flesh in some way. The purpose can be understood one of two ways. If we say the purpose is to glorify God and make that merely an intellectual abstraction, people immediately then take their intellectual minds, not converted minds, intellectual minds, and interpret it in terms of what they know naturally. Then they can say, well, of course it's to glorify God, and here's how I do it. And then they really indicate what their purpose is, and that's what they're doing. But it takes a revelation from God to know what it really means to glorify him in your living and your dying. And that's why we said it must be something we come to God and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, show me what it means to glorify you. And then we search the word of God to find what it means to glorify God. And we constantly allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to maintain. And that's one of the last major points we need to make, that we need to constantly pursue after and to reaffirm and to keep alive that purpose. Or it simply escapes us and we drop back to something other than that. And we just cannot afford to do that. And my prayer is that each one that hears these teachings will search the Word of God, see that these things are so. You brothers and sisters, with the pressures that are on you, you will not let these things slip, but will build them up in your hearts and your minds until they literally possess your whole being, until there is no other purpose that can possibly take its place. But I say, even then, the Bible says, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We must never count ourselves in an utterly safe place in these matters. I think the thing that has kept me safe over many, many, many years of walking with God, and I was not kept safe before that time. I was kept in safety. In other words, I did not perish. But I fell and fell seriously. Because I thought I had it together. I knew these things. I knew the Bible. I'd read it. I had a good mind. I grasped the basic concepts and teachings. And how foolish. I knew nothing as I needed to know. Now, my prayer is simply this. I realize there is in my flesh no good thing dwelling. I realize that my soul is kept alive only by the grace of God. I know that when I'm in heaven, standing before his presence, I there will still be utterly dependent upon his grace and his life, constantly flowing to me. He is forever God. I am forever the redeemed and created being. But I'm safe because God has put something in my heart to simply say to God, Lord, 
you keep me safe. I depend on you. And it's almost like that utter abandonment of myself to his grace to constantly keeps a supply coming into me that I know what his purpose is and I don't lose sight of it. But I know the minute that I would think that I was safe in the sense that I could say, oh, I don't need this grace anymore. I've got it down now. At that moment, my mind would become darkened. My foolish heart would be darkened and I'd fall right back into some self-centered purpose. So my prayer is for each of us that we develop that attitude of utter dependence on God, that we make use of the means of grace, the prayer, the reading of the word, that we follow after the vision like a heart pursues after water, that we follow after God in that same way, that our heart is given to the things of God, not for the thing's sake, but that that constant vision of the glory of God may rest in us. What we face in life is twofold. One is first getting the heart right toward God. And that's the greatest problem that we have. Now, once the heart is right toward God, then a second stage must take place. The confusion of the human mind must be removed. It must be lined up to what God really wants us to do physically. See, what he wants me to do spiritually is to give all glory to him. That becomes the evident thing. So, if I don't understand the difference between these two things, though, then I want to interpret this idea, for instance, this message that we're speaking here now, to give glory to God. I will immediately try to interpret how I should give glory to God. Whereas the first step is simply going to God and saying, Lord, I present myself to you. I present my life. I present my family. I present my business. I present my future. I present my past. Henceforth, I own or control nothing. Now, that's a matter of getting the heart in the right place to yield total lordship to God. Because the first step in glorifying God is coming to the place where we know he is Lord of our lives. And we simply allow him to be the Lord of our lives. Now, this requires nothing physical at this point. It is simply an attitude of heart, which an attitude of commitment, submission of the will to the great reality that God is God. He's in control of everything. That if we then can take the next step, it is like this. I would then go to the word of the Lord and say, Lord, show me what it means to surrender to you. What could be the possible outcome of such a surrender? Well, then I see the gamut all the way from dying at a good old age with my grandchildren and great-grandchildren around me and a very successful life, lands or servants or whatever would be there, all the way from that happy vision to martyrdom, torture. See, And no guarantee that if I follow in God's way that one or the other will be what will happen to me. I have no control over this. But simply coming to that place, because now to glorify God is the all-important thing, I simply am saying to God, my life is in your charge, Lord. You do with it what you see fit to do. And if it means a happy old age, or if it means that I will be there at the coming of the Lord to see him, or if it means that I will be martyred, all are the same, only that you may be glorified. Then a remarkable thing begins to happen, and it's the thing that I call the phenomenon of neutrality. 
my heart begins to become neutral. I don't want to do, nor do I not want to do, any particular thing. I don't want to rush off and evangelize, nor do I wish to rush off and get the church together, nor do I wish to rush off to a monastery and get myself together. I don't want to do or not do any particular thing. I only want to glorify God, and all that I'm waiting for is also a revelation from God as to what physical things I should begin to do which will bring about that greater glory. Now, you see, the idea that a person, as soon as he gets this message, now rushes off to do something is erroneous because his heart is not yet in that settled position of neutrality where he can really hear what he ought to be doing. So my counsel, the first point, is to make sure that we have completely committed our heart to God on this point. It's a very personal transaction between ourselves and God. Father, I give you my heart. I give you my future, my past, my possessions, my family, all that I have or am or ever will be. It's yours now. And we know that that's a reality. Now, once that's done, now we're ready for the next step, which we'll be getting into, that part about the vision, which will show us how to carry out the purpose. And then another part of the study further down the line will be how to find that unique physical thing that we should be doing, which fits us into both the purpose and the vision, so that our life will be filled. But I think rather than trying to say, how do you find exactly what to do, let me, since the purpose of this tape is to speak only of the purpose of God, let me say the thing to do now is to simply make sure that our hearts are utterly at rest and peace with that concept that they're given only to the glory of God and that all of our future is now going to pass to him to do with as he will. The scripture deals much with the word patience. It says you have need of patience after you have done the will of God that you might obtain the promise. And all of us as humans are notoriously impatient when we've made this little move toward God, all we've done is we've caught a revelation now, maybe. And a very little tiny part of the revelation is all we have to glorify God. But we have no idea of knowing what that means in any sense of fullness. I've walked with God for many years, and I find myself just day by day learning more and more of what it means to glorify God. It's a continuing, expanding revelation. But humanity's failure, and why so few people really see the promises of God fulfilled in their life, they have no patience. They make a little move toward God and immediately say, how come God didn't make these tremendous moves toward me? But God is trying to bring us to the place of grasping the power of real commitment. Lord, I'm going to stop all of my little fragmented doings on this earth and I'm going to deal with the one really important thing. I'm going to give you my whole being that you may be glorified by my life and by my death. Here, Lord, am I. Well, now, I tell you in truth, if that took a person a month or two months or two years, but that real commitment was made, then the time of that revelation would come swiftly and his progress would be just like on the wings of the wind. He would move. But if he doesn't have that real revelation of the glory of God, he can even have a revelation from God as to what he should be doing. 
and it would all be frustration and failure. It would go nowhere because he has no patience developed. You have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might obtain the promise. So let us pray for patience, and of course that means tribulation, and that's another word for time and experience, and we just simply have to learn how to wait on God for those things. But let's not be in a hurry. Let's take the first step first, and then the other teachings will come on vision and direction so that we know how to find those physical things we should be doing. Here again is the word patience. We simply must start with this starting point that we, in our integrity that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, not human integrity, but the integrity which is given to us by the coming of the Lord Jesus into us, we come to God and say, Lord, reveal to me your purpose. And then he does. He shows us that the purpose is to glorify him. Then we admit intellectually, we don't understand that, and we need to be taught. And we then present ourselves to him, our life, our death, our future, our past, our businesses, our fortunes, all that we have or ever will be. Lord, it is now yours, and whatever you want for my life, your Lord. Now it is true that at times, because of the war that goes on, we remove him temporarily from lordship in our minds but not in the deepest part of our beings. But because we have made a covenant with a faithful God, the faithful God keeps on dealing faithfully with us and calling us back again and again to an ever more clear perception of that real purpose for which we exist. And little by little, if that's the thing we really desire, and we've really made an honest presentation of ourselves, Lord, that you should be Lord. God, that you should be God. And that's been a real commitment then this faithful God keeps calling us back again and again to a clear understanding of that purpose and that vision. Now, I think the word here is patience must be exercised. And it does not matter what our background is. It can be middle-class America. It could be a person who has just simply tribal cultural background from some place in some far-off country. It could be a person of the very height of society or the depth of society. But that common purpose will work in us all to bring us out of those difficulties into that reality. And I don't think we ought to fear that. I think the people that are hearing these teachings, whatever their background is, if they make that true commitment to God, that faithful God will continually lead them step by step until they're free of all those things they need to be free of. But that requires a retraining of the soul, doesn't it? See, your soulish life, your mind and your emotions are oriented to receive satisfaction in a certain area. Now God, in his great plan, is broadening us out so that every area of our life is an expression of the life of God to his glory. But some of us are slotted or fragmented into one area or another. And now God begins to expand that whole life and, of course, it takes a retraining and enlarging of the concepts of the soul. And that's where the Word of God, once again, is so marvelous that all things that pertain in the life and godliness, God has given us in his book, and it tells us just how to proceed in those areas. I see how God is bringing about a kind of fullness of creation that none of us have ever experienced. We cannot conceive of it. And the scripture makes this clear when it says, we have not seen him like he is, but when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And who can ponder or meditate or grasp 
What a fantastic fullness that will be when we are like him. But see, even on this earth, we see our whole lives expanding and reaching out into whole areas that we would want nothing to do with at all. And God, by the patient working of his Holy Spirit, is changing us so that every area of our life is to the glory of God. You know, I think God has very wisely not told us those things which he considers the most important as far as ministry is concerned. And we constantly find this to be real. See, it's not important that I preach the gospel in India. What is important is that the gospel be preached in India. Now, if the best way that can be done is by me being in the United States or Mexico or China, then it's far better that I be in Mexico or China or the United States than that I personally be preaching the gospel in India. And I think the whole point is to bring ourselves to the place where we're saying, I am not going to interpret anymore what I think should be done. I'm going to wait for a revelation from God. I'm going to get down to the business of committing myself to God, my whole life to him, and then let him begin through the authority, the direction, the instruction in my life, lead me to what I should be doing. And if a man can see that his whole life is his ministry, see, once again, if we're merely identifying that unique something called ministering, when we mean preaching behind a pulpit or counseling, that's all right to use that word ministry. But I think we need to use the word ministry also in its broadest possible sense when ministry really means to serve. Now, my whole life is my service. So if I can have that concept about it, then it's no longer me particularly doing a unique thing, but rather me doing everything that God wants me to do. And this will bring about the glory of God and the furthest possible penetration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But I think these things are not generally understood, and we keep falling back to carnal definitions of what would be the ideal thing. And that's not the ideal thing at all. We have no way of knowing the ideal thing. The ideal thing is to be doing exactly what God wants me to do. And that he will reveal if I'm patient.